Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Hey, welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. I've got my coffee mug here. I'm Dr. Kedar Mate, and I'm the president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Today's conversation is the second of four coffee and science events on topics related to adjustment, which refers to healthcare activities that change clinical care to accommodate patients' social conditions. I'm excited to talk today with Dr. Saul Wiener. Uh, Saul is a professor of medicine, pediatrics, and medical education, and director of the Clinical Leaders and Academic Scholars Fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and the deputy director of the Center of Innovation for Complex Chronic Healthcare at the Veterans Health Administration. Welcome, Saul. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. All right. For the next half an hour, Saul and I have agreed to talk about the intersection of social care adjustment and the incredible body of work that he's put together on contextualizing care. We're going to get into what that means in just a few minutes, but we'll discuss some of the benefits and potentially some of the unintended consequences of implementing contextualized care. So first, just a bit of definition setting. Uh, This is the second, as I mentioned, of of a handful of conversations about this concept of adjustment. And as I said earlier, adjustment is defined as a set of activities that focus on altering clinical care to accommodate identified social or contextual challenges that patients might experience. A simple example of that might be uh, providing language translation services for a non-English speaker, or providing weekend or after hours clinics for someone that has a job that would otherwise prevent them from coming to the clinic. There are more complex versions of adjustment, but I wonder if we could start similarly, Saul, with a question to you around, if you can, uh, lay the groundwork here for us. What is exactly contextualizing care as you understand it? I'd like to strip this of jargon and just say that contextualizing care is really what the word is meant to to mean, which is that when you're with a patient and you're thinking as a clinician, you typically start by trying to understand the patient's clinical state, what's going on with them, what diagnoses do they have, what's the state of those clinical conditions, and you start thinking about what's the research evidence for managing those. And I think we get into trouble when we just think that's all we do as doctors. Our patients have complex lives, and those lives often present challenges that we need to know about in order to appropriately manage their care. And I think you gave some examples of that. If a patient can't pay for a medication, if a patient doesn't have transportation, it may also be something like a patient just lacks the skills or the ability to manage their care. That could be very concrete, like they have arthritic fingers and they can't give themselves injections, or it could be that they have cognitive limitations. This is the context. It's the context in which you care for them. And contextualizing care is really nothing more than attempting to identify what's relevant in their life. What is the context? And then seeing what you can do to help them to take that into account when planning their care. So Saul, can you give us an example of when failure to contextualize or the, the converse here, not contextualizing care, might lead to an adverse consequence? What might happen if you don't contextualize care? Well, just to go with a really concrete example in the direction you were headed, which is, um, let's suppose a patient comes in with a poorly controlled chronic condition that was previously well controlled. It could have been that they were on uh, insulin glargine, for instance, which is expensive, and all of a sudden they no longer have coverage for it. 
or they're on an expensive brand name inhaler for a, a asthma and all of a sudden they don't have the ability to pay for it. And so they're not taking it as they're supposed to. Um, they may be hesitant to tell you that up front and you don't pick up on that. And you're thinking in a very sort of narrow biomedical way. And you're like, ooh, poorly controlled, moderate persistent asthma. I guess I need to add another inhaler or insulin, you know, diabetes isn't well controlled, time to go up, add Lispro, maybe send them to a, an endocrinologist and so forth. We would call that a contextual error because it's a care plan that looks good on paper. If you were just basically auditing the chart, you'd say, oh, wow, this doc did a pretty good job. But if you'd been a fly on the wall, if you knew what was going on, what the context was, you'd say, this doesn't make any sense. That's not why this patient's lost control of their asthma or their diabetes. They can't afford the medication. The appropriate care would be to, you know, to switch them to a cheaper generic or to something that's covered by their health plan. So those are just very concrete examples of what we mean by a contextual error. One of the things that where I work works on a lot is patient safety. And we talk about errors all the time, errors of omission, commission, errors that cause significant harm to our patients. In your view, you use the word. So I'm, I'm curious as to what, whether you think this is a category of errors in the patient safety world. Is this something that we should be thinking about in the patient safety world as a way of understanding error, perhaps, that is a little different to what we've seen in the past. In fact, if you look at the IOM's definition of error from their seminal report around 1999 to Errors Human, a contextual error actually is an error, according to the IOM. It's actually error of planning, essentially. And, and what happens is you as the physician have missed some vital data and so in a sense, your diagnosis of what's going on with that patient is incorrect. And so you come up with a faulty diagnosis. Now, it sounds a little weird because from a strictly biomedical standpoint, looking at the chart, it might look like you did the right thing. But if the data from context is factored in, uh, in this case, going back to examples I gave you, which is that the patient couldn't afford their, their treatment plan and, and therefore isn't taking their medication and so forth and has lost control, that would be a kind of medical error. Now, what's interesting about it um, and unfortunate is that it's invisible using the normal methods of looking for error. Uh, when the IOM and many others have done studies on error and have um, used methods, they've gone to the chart, um, they've gone to claims data, and, um, and they've said, oh, look, there's an error here, there's a discrepancy uh, between, say, a diagnosis and a treatment plan. The surgeon operated on the wrong limb, or the patient got the wrong dose of a drug. But what's unfortunate about contextual errors is they fly under the radar. Um, the chart will always represent the logic and the thinking of the physician. And so the only way to capture these errors is to actually hear the conversation between the doctor and the patient, uh, which is why all of our research has required audio recording visits between doctors and patients. Uh, and we've done thousands of those. And if you're listening to that conversation, you can track whether the physician is making that error or not. And just very briefly, we look for four things. We look first for whether there's a clue that the patient is struggling with a life issue that could be complicating their care. We call that a contextual red flag. It could be a comment like, boy, doc, it's been tough since I've lost my job, okay? Or it could be a, a hemoglobin A1C that suddenly went up when it had used to be good. Those are clues. The next thing we look for is the contextual probe, which is, did the physician notice and ask about it or the nurse or whoever is the clinical care provider and say, hey, I noticed you were doing a great job with your diabetes, what happened? We call that contextual probing. The third element is, what does the patient say in return? Does the patient come back and say, yeah, doc, I'm, I'm, it's been really tough. I, I can't afford this glargine insulin. It's just way too expensive for me. We would call that the contextual factor. That's, that's the goal. That's what you're trying to find out. And then finally, does the physician attempt to do something about it? They take that information into account in their care plan. And that's what we would mean by contextualized care plan. Things can go wrong in two places. Either the physician fails to probe the contextual red flag and they never find out what the real issue is, or the physician finds out what it is and for some reason still doesn't really act on that information and you end up with a care plan that isn't gonna work.
you've made a two different points already in this conversation. You've made the comment, it won't show up in the chart, that you've got to do something different to recognize it. You've got to understand it differently. I'm curious how we would understand contextual errors as occurring in, in a clinical context. If you're trying to build a program to try to see how many such events were occurring, not in the research context, but in a real life context, how would we build that program? How would we get that done right now in this environment? So what we've been doing in a large project that I've run in the VA for a number of years is we just hand out audio recorders to patients in the waiting area. It's a VA approved encrypted protocol. They carry a little audio recorder into the visit. They can put it in their pocket. They can show it to the doctor if they want. Physicians are on board. Um, when they come out, it's uploaded to a secure server. It's coded. Obviously, this is a convenient sample, but we get a lot of these, thousands, and we code them just using the elements I just mentioned to you. And we see how often these contextual errors are occurring based on this kind of convenience sampling. Obviously, it's not a perfect measure, but we've done it for many years. We know that contextual error rates are high. We know that physicians miss context either because they don't probe or because they overlook contextual factors, even when the patient just tells them. And it could be because they're distracted looking at the medical chart, or it could be because uh, they think they have too little time, you know, a variety of reasons. But, um, but that gives us a pretty good idea. We can tell we have good data that we've published on how often these errors occur in a variety of settings. And we've also shown that these errors lead to a lot of overuse and misuse of medical services, because when physicians ignore this stuff, they tend to just order a lot of extra tests and treatments. And we've also shown that when physicians do pick up on these contextual factors and address them, not surprisingly, perhaps, patients do better. Physician finds out that the patient really can't afford a medicine and switch them, switches them to a, a cheaper version they can't afford. Not surprisingly, that A1C is more likely to come down. And that's true for many, many different uh, contextual factors. So let me ask you now about what might be some of the challenges. One of them is the whole way that we run a contextual error capture program, which you just described, which is obviously a little bit more complicated than a chart audit, uh, which is often how safety programs are conducted. But let me maybe ask a question about another potential risk or downside of contextual care. And I'm curious about your reactions to this. Are there situations in which clinicians may contextualize based on their own bias? Obviously, the literature and the public discourse really on unconscious bias is probably more prevalent than ever before. And I guess I'm wondering whether or not there is essentially a risk of false contextualization. In other words, we make assumptions based on appearance or the the insurance status or other factors about a patient that then affects our plan. And I'm wondering if we see many examples of that. Are there risks in which we might over-contextualize or falsely contextualize care? I'm sure that happens. Like anything else, people can do something well or do it badly. You know, I think if you're making all kinds of assumptions at a patient, uh, you may interact with them in ways that are intended to be helpful, but ultimately aren't really. I think what we can say, though, is that in our research and also in our quality improvement initiatives, when we simply code for these contextual errors and contextualized care plans based off of these audio recordings, and then just share that data back with physicians and other members of the care team, on average, they change their behavior in ways that leads to better outcomes for their patients, statistically. And we've actually looked at this number needed to treat it is about six and so forth. So my guess is that in some cases they're overshooting, in other cases they're undershooting, you know, maybe they're making assumptions. But on average, if you just show physicians where they're making these errors and where they're doing it well, on average, they self-adjust in ways that are net beneficial to patients. But I think your point is well taken that there's been so little attention to training clinicians to really do this, to make this part of the way they think and function as doctors, that there's probably an enormous opportunities for improvement and for, for addressing biases and judgment as well. I suspect that a lot of clinicians, when you talk about this, are concerned about time and concerned about 
feasibility. I know you've looked into some of these questions, so I'd be uh, eager to hear your thoughts around how do we, with limited amount of time in the office, how do we get to contextualizing efficiently? I think one thing that we have noticed in our research is that some physicians do this better than others. And, and one of the fascinating findings that we never expected is that on average, when physicians contextualize care, their visits are not on average longer. And we've actually studied this in very rigorous ways when we've looked at cases where we have actors portray patients with contextual factors and go in and do 50 visits with exactly the same scenario. And we found that the physicians who pick up on the contextual red flags and address them, their visits are not on average any longer. And I, I think what we found is that when the physicians overlook that context, they may save a few minutes at the beginning of the visit by just ignoring clues, but then they lose time on the back end of the visit because they're now kind of going down the rabbit hole, ordering unnecessary tests and talking to the patient about how they need to be more compliant and so forth. So it's kind of a wash. Um, now, I'm not saying that we don't need more time with patients. I'm just saying on average, contextualizing care is more a way of thinking than like additional added on work that you need to do during a visit. I was talking about your work and about contextualizing care with my, my wife uh, last night at dinner time. So I knew I was coming into this conversation with you. She's an infectious disease doc. She teaches medical students about patients, providers, and society course at the, the Medical College of Virginia here at VCU. And one of her thoughts about this was that if we move to a program in which we incentivize contextualizing or we made it part of something that we want to get our physicians to do, the, the instinct to contextualize is about building trust with our patients. Is there another potential downside here that we might be motivated as clinicians to contextualize care because of some potential external incentive rather than just to fundamentally get to know our patients better, to trust them differently? Well, you know, in our work, we've had no incentive other than to show physicians where they're doing well and where they're doing poorly. We don't have a program at the VA where physicians get paid more because they're contextualizing care. Um, and so I think physicians like to do the right thing. You know, I also feel like many of us went to medical school and became doctors because we wanted to have this more holistic approach to medicine. And we've been sort of funneled through these cookie cutter algorithmic performance measures to just focus on checking off boxes. You know, did you have your colonoscopy? Did you have your mammogram? And what's interesting about this is it's really saying, we're going to give you feedback on whether you're also kind of doing the opposite. You know, are you figuring out when you need to look at the big picture and how that's relevant and how you apply that. And I think many people went to medical school to do that. And so once they realize that this is non-threatening and the way we do this is we give them, the American Board of Internal Medicine gives them credit for doing this. They get MOC points and so forth, but there's no stick. And, we, and, and the default is we remove identifiers. I think physicians are like, wow, this is kind of cool. This is kind of what I wanted to, to be judged for doing, not judged in the negative sense, but this is what I wanted to expect of myself. Um, as a doctor, they would actually step aside, take control of the visit, not just say, I'm not going to spend the next 10 minutes just checking off things. I'm going to say, man, this person has no idea what's going on. They're totally confused. That's the contextual red flag. We're going to figure out how they're confused. We're going to talk with them about what's going on with their care. And maybe we won't get to any of the other stuff, but that's what matters. That's I, as a doctor, know that that's, that has to happen first. So it's in really, in really sending a signal to physicians that Take, take back your power. Do what you think is the right thing. You know in your heart of hearts that this patient is going to walk out totally confused and they're not going to do anything you told them to do. And you wish you could focus on that. So do it. And you can just put an addendum in your notes saying, we didn't get time to talk about the colonoscopy. Primary care gives you that freedom. You can do that at another visit. And so I think that this is a positive. I hear your advocacy for just doing this. It's, it's a very important point. What would you hope for in the regulatory or national conversation about this? What would, what would move this from the research world into the, into the oh. world of usual practice. 
I'm glad you asked that question to your leadership role at IHI because I think we need to say, why aren't we audio recording visits? You think about it, we measure performance in healthcare in every possible way except actually measuring it directly. We measure, we look at what's in the chart. We look at what patients write. That's, that's all secondary data. That reflects whatever, whoever wrote the note wanted the note to say so they could bill. The visit itself is this black box. And, and by the way, I'll say that because we listen to thousands of visits, there's so much other stuff that we hear that distinguishes high from low performing physicians that you could never tell any other way. You know, for instance, some physicians don't even do the physical exam that they put in their note, whereas others are meticulous. Some counsel patients on, on how to quit smoking and offer all sorts of evidence-based interventions. And others just say, you need to quit. Some folks do motivational interviewing, others don't. There's so much variability and the great physicians are getting no credit. The poor physicians look great if they write good notes. And that's because no one is evaluating care based on actually directly observing it. And so yeah. I guess what I'd love to throw back to folks in the quality movement is Shouldn't we start doing that? And, and, and ethically, how do we not do that? So you're making an argument for direct observation as a way of understanding quality in the clinical encounter in a broad sense. One part of that would be errors of context or contextual understanding. But you're, you're making an argument for observation as a quality opportunity. Yeah, as someone who listens to thousands of visits, I feel like we're evaluating healthcare with blinders on right now. My team is one of several that has published a study showing that what's in the chart and what happens during a visit don't comport so well. And that there, there's a lot of fantastic care that isn't being credited and a lot of shoddy care that's getting missed. And then all, obviously you can't incentivize change if, you, if you're not measuring it. Certainly it would result in a number of teachable or coachable moments uh, to be sure. You know, that I'm reminded of Atul Gawande's famous uh, article about coaching in the New Yorker. I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but he, he described how as a, as a surgeon, he had almost no coaching beyond residency training. You know, we just, as clinicians, we don't get much pra in practice or just in time coaching once we graduate from being a resident. It's a huge opportunity for coaching and we call it audit and feedback. Just like when the performance improvement movement came into being, we had to build trust with physicians who were very paranoid. I think now physicians are very paranoid about audio recording and we spend a lot of time creating an environment where they feel safe, where they know that this is never used punitively, where it's protected peer review, where it's not a burden, it doesn't interfere with their practice flow, where they see value. And so I do think that IHI and other organizations, if you start to embrace and advocate for this type of data collection and, and performance evaluation and, and coaching, I think also we have to kind of, you know, be very clear that this is never going to be punitive um, and, and that this has to feel safe. Um, it's not reputationally risky for physicians to do this and so forth. It'll certainly take some norm setting if we were going to try to do that kind of reporting and coaching. And it'd have to be done in the spirit of improvement. I think the risk in all of this would be that uh, those reportings or otherwise would be used for disciplinary action. I think that would, or disciplinary action or, or, or scrutiny of some kind or audit, if they're used in the spirit of improvement and learning, like a lot of things, uh, things could be very different. Yeah. And we'd, we'd had 660 attending physicians across six VA facilities in four states working with us on our latest protocol. And, and they they embraced it and, and, and they, they improved their, their care. So I think it, you really can build confidence. Physicians want to do the right thing. Obviously, they don't want to feel like they're going to get in trouble and, and they want to grow. And I think it's, it's a very viable culture change. Let me turn to a question from Edward uh, Shore. Edward asks, would you say that noncompliance is primarily a system failure, a failure to adjust, that is? Uh, rather than a patient characteristic, provocative, I think. I don't like the word non-compliance. I prefer the word non-adherence. I can't take credit for this. To not comply sort of implies that patient, quote, follows the doctor's orders and is somehow being a bad patient. 
Um, not adhering is just a statement of fact. They have not adhered. And that opens up questions. You know, if someone has not adhered, you have to ask, why haven't they adhered? If they've not complied, they haven't done what they were supposed to. So I think that if we start with the term, why is a patient not adhering? It just becomes an empirical question. We begin by asking them, hey, what's going on? I notice you haven't refilled your medications. And then anything can emerge. It could be um, a concrete barrier. They can't afford something, or it could be a misunderstanding, or it could be an issue of concern that they have. It could, or it could be they didn't know. There are so many reasons. So when the when Edward asks, um, would you say that noncompliance is primarily a system failure to adjust rather than a patient characteristic? I would say um, it's it's not a patient characteristic. I don't think we should think of patients as inherently noncompliant. But I think we have to beyond that, we have to be completely open and say. It's a question mark, and it's our job as doctors to just take it from there. Is the patient-physician conversation the best unit of analysis here? So what about contextualization as a collective effort of the whole care team, uh, patient, physician, caregivers, family, health coaches, MAs, you know, the people? No, great question. So we actually, in our work, we actually do include uh, the care team. In, in the VA, they call it the PAC, patient line care team. So we actually, the audio recording collects um, the conversation between uh, the, the nurse and the patient uh, during vitals. It actually it also collects the data that occurs when the patient checks in with the clerk. Um, so for instance, if a patient shows up late, does the clerk just say, you're late, you know, I'll have to talk to the doctor and see if she'll still see you. Um, a, a contextualized intervention would be, hey, I noticed you've been late a couple of times. Is there something going on that's making it difficult for you to get your appointment? So that would be a contextualized response from a, from a, a contextualized probe from a clerk. So we actually code every element of the interaction and we actually give feedback to each party. And we found it's best to do that at, at PAC team meetings when they're all there together. So absolutely, couldn't agree more. We do that. There's a couple of questions here that are really about how you handle what people tell you. As you start a contextual inquiry, uh, who handles the follow-up? The, what's the next step when there's a problem or an issue identified? And what are the effective practices for physicians who find that patients have more contextual barriers than can be addressed in the moment in the clinical encounter? These are really important. Personally, I, I, I wish I had a, for example, a social worker physically present in our clinic at all times. And I think that often we do struggle not knowing what, what the resources are or how to access them. And so I think every practice needs to optimize and constantly update its ability to support clinical care by providing these types of resources when needed, as needed. But I also want to make it clear that our, our studies show that a lot of times physicians never even identify the contextual factor. They don't probe. Can't just, as physicians say, well, it's really not my problem. I mean, it's, you know, we just don't have enough resources. That is an aspect of it. But I also think a lot of this is that we as physicians are cognitively trained to be very biomedically focused, to prioritize biomedical information. And over and over again, we hear that contextual probes don't occur and that factors are missed. Any ob objections you've heard to either physicians, you mentioned that there's over 600 physicians in the VA that are part of this program now. What about the patient side of this? Is there any objection that you've experienced on the patient side to being reported? Um, or how, how are you communicating the value of the audio recording process to the patients themselves? Well, that's really important. We just have a little desk in the, in the front of the waiting area where a, a volunteer sits or a project assistant sits and with a flyer and patients come up, they express interest. And of course, if they choose to do it, it's a personal decision. We tell them this is an opportunity to maybe not help their own care, but help us provide better care on average to our patients to make care more personalized. And particularly in the VA, a lot of veterans love the idea of helping other veterans. Um, so I have to say we've had a lot of a positive culture response there. And we always tell them if you're uncomfortable, just turn off the audio 
thing they feel like, you know, you wouldn't want anyone to hear this. Um, so we have to really make it clear to them. Um, we ought to make it clear to them that their physicians on board, they're not being asked to spawn their physicians. So absolutely, these are all really important factors, but ultimately it has to be something that the patient's comfortable with and they typically do it altruistically. Well, Saul, we're getting close to our, the end of our time here today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about contextualizing care. I think you're setting the table for evolution of the safety agenda to consider errors of context, which are which are powerful. I think they're really meaningful. They're apropos of the, of the moment right now where we're starting to recognize and understand uh, just how much of a challenge we have around really understanding our patients and our families' lived experience and how we might bring that experience into the clinical context and respond to it with uh, care planning that uh, meets the patient's needs in a different kind of way. Thank you, Ketter. And I also would love to thank the folks who have hosted us, Siren, for a Coffee and Science event. Yes, well, thanks, uh, Saul. That's all the time we have. Let me just say and express my thanks to you, Saul, again, for this amazing conversation. And thanks for your work that you're doing to bring attention and knowledge to context, really an amazing and important adjustment strategy. Stay tuned for our final session on adjustment, which will be happening on August 24th with Dr. Emmy Ganos and Dr. Stacy Dusetzina. They will explore how real-time pharmacy benefits may work as a social care adjustment strategy. That will conclude today. And once again, as Saul said, thank you all. And thanks to Siren for the Coffee and Science conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.